Did you come up short at the Olympic trials? Did you not even make the Olympic trials? I think I know why. You weren't wearing the Airwave Performance Mouthpiece. It's a relatively new training tool. Launched last year after 16 years of research. It pushes your jaw just forward enough to create the optimal airway opening, resulting in increased endurance, reducing the respiratory rate by 20%. That means less lactic acid, increased strength, faster recovery times because cortisol can be reduced up to 50%. You need to check it out. It's only $39.99 and you can save 10% off by using code LR10. Dig into the science and put Airwave to the test. Airwave.com and use code LR10 at checkout. Are you ready for an amazing edition of Let's Run.com Track Talk Podcast? I hope so, because a blockbuster U.S. Olympic track and field trials are in the books, as well as trials from all over the world. And the Olympic fields are almost set. Donovan Brazier, Craig Ingalls, Shelby Houlihan, and even Mo Farah will be watching the games on television. Jenny Simpson also will not be in Tokyo, but Yair Nagus will be, just like I told you, We'll get into all of that and much more. Let's Run.com co-founder Robert Johnson here, joined as always by my genetic equal, faster twin brother, though, Weldon Johnson, as well as the man that Dean Castor called the human stat book, Jonathan Galt. How are you guys doing? I couldn't be better, Robert. I mean, yesterday, for if you're not a, tra- if you're not a football fan, England beat Germany in the last 16 of Euro 2020. One of the biggest England football team wins of my life. We're into the quarterfinals, playing Ukraine on Saturday, and it's coming home. We just first of all turned off a bunch of viewers, but this is some B-rate tournament. And they won a game in the round of 16, and John's acting like Michael Jordan has won his seventh NBA title or something crazy. But John, I hope you've recovered. What a trials. Even if I missed the final day because of some, I don't know if the right, is it fair to say, are, are we even allowed to criticize USATF anymore? Some incompetence on the final day, but we shouldn't let, let that get in the way of the great action. Half of America missed it because it was on TV too late, but wow, what a trials and what a final day as well. Yeah, well then that, I have to say that was one of the greatest nights of track and field I've ever attended. And the meet was barely an hour long. They had the... The men's long jump started, I guess, but the running events didn't start till 9.20, and they were over by 10. And yet, within that span, we packed in a world record in the 400-meter hurdles, a near-American record by a thing, Mo, in the 800 meters, a fantastic 200 with Noah Lyles taking down Arian Knighton, and one of the best 1500s I've seen in many years between Cole Hawker and Matthew Centrowitz. All that happened in the span of 40 minutes on Sunday night. So really, I feel bad that you couldn't make it there because that might have that was probably the single best stretch of the trials. And it was the one stretch you missed. I was fine missing it, John. I was fine missing it. Watching it in the airport bar with a bunch of other people who 
weren't there. I mean, there's a ton of trials people at the airport watching this thing. It's kind of cool and surreal and what have you. But also, wait, shout out. We already talked about Sunday's action on the Subscriber Supporters Club show. Thanks to everyone who signed up. Tons of people. We had weekly podcasts, video shows from the trials. Let's run.com slash subscribe. Get in for Tokyo now while you can. I mean, the f- fan reception at the trials was great. All the Let's Runners are in into. Uh, I promised, you know, 10 Let's Runners free beer. And I did a good job of avoiding the bar so I wouldn't have to give out the free beers, you know? Um, but Yeah, what, even when we hit the Wild Duck, you told me to go get three beers. And then I come back and you're surrounded by about five people. And you're like, John, why didn't you get more beers? I was like, well... You only told me to get a beer for you, me, and for Pat Price, who's Pat. If you're listening, hello, good to see you at the Wild Duck. Then I come back, and you're like, "Where's the rest of the beer?" I'm like, first of all, how many beers do you think I can carry?" And two, you, you didn't tell me to get more beers, so that's on you, not on me. I'm sorry. I, I didn't realize they had a labor shortage at the Wild Duck. You couldn't go back to the bar, so I apologize. And right before we got in the Wild Duck, we've not told Robert this. This will inflate his ego. I'm walking through a parking lot, and I hear this. Robert or Rojo? I don't know what they said, John. Which was it? Uh, I think it was Rojo. They're like, Rojo? And I'm like, nah, Weldon. And they're like, oh my God. Like, And this guy said, I'm a huge fan, but this, she, she lo-, he points to like this girl with him. Like, she loves Let's Run. Just It's her f- favorite website. Can we get a picture? And I'm like, sure. And then somehow they hand me the phone, even though I'm going to be in the picture. Maybe I'm going to take a selfie. I guess that's what the stars do. You take a selfie. And... I look at the phone and guess what's on the screen? A let'srun.com thread. And I'm like, oh my God, this is just so epic. This, they're, they're not lying about being huge Let's Run junkies. I mean, this is at like 1130 at night and they're leaving the wild duck. And I pull up the thread. It's about Mo Farah. They're at the US trials and they're reading about Mo Farah bombing out at the British trials in, in the 10K. I thought it was great. I don't know who these people were. They had a UC Davis shirt on. The guy and the girl, there's a bunch of them, but the one guy who told me and the girl who he said is the number one fan, you guys are the Let's Run.com fans of the week. You get free on shoes. On sponsored the Road to the Trials, and we've been giving away on shoes to great Let's Run community members. You guys are the ones this week. Email me at Ouija at Let's Run.com. And fake Josh Kerr, your shoes, your shoes are on the way. Rojo told me to text you, and I didn't do it. I was too busy at the trial. So for once, I am responsible for something. But thank you, On, for sponsoring. And whoa, what a trials by On. Two Olympians and Leah Fallon, probably the like story more people can relate to, like giving it her all, coming up short. To me, I think, you know, we'll talk maybe more about this next week. For the people who didn't make the trials, I think that's going to be probably the most memorable story outside of like a brazier or something like that. Yeah, what, one last thing of stroking our own egos before we actually get into the trials breakdown is if you were paying close attention to the men's 1500, specifically the two minutes after the race where the NBC cameras were following around Cole Hawker, you may have noticed that one of the people congratulating him, one of his friends, was wearing the Your Move t-shirt. As made famous, Let's Run.com, Robert Johnson created this, sold it on the website, and then it got some airtime celebrating with Cole Hawker. So, Robert, congrats again on that idea. Well, it wasn't wasn't your move. You didn't come up with the line, but you did come up with the T-shirt. Thank you, John. You know, that race was great because it was hyped up like a prize fight. The trash talk, 
promotion. You need that for sport. Worked out amazing. If you got ideas for a new shirt, I think we need a t-shirt or something like that. That would be great. By the way, we do have a new t-shirt app on the shop. Go to shop.letsrun.com now, only through July 5th. You can show your letsrun.com pride. Get one now. All proceeds are going to charity. Robert, can I? Can, can you specify which charity? Do we know that yet? Yes, I'm going to give to the New York Roadrunners uh, Kids Charity. Kids, what's it called? Kids for Run Charity. Team Run for Kids, is that it? Team Run for Kids. There we go. And also, wait, the guy wearing the Your Move shirt as a tank top, I think that guy deserves on shoes as well. We've got to find out the, who that guy is and reward him too. If you get the Let's Run t-shirt on national TV, good to go. Good to go. All right. One thing, actually, I have a question about the end of this race. So Cole Hawker throws up the shh thing to like silence the haters, the doubters, basically. Did anyone else find that kind of a weird celebration? I mean, he's running in Haywood Field in an Oregon singlet. Like he's in front of his home fans. Everyone loves Cole Hawker in Oregon. I don't know if anyone, like, does it count as a hater if I'm saying I think he's going to make the Olympic team, but he might get beat by the defending Olympic champion and one of the best American milers of all time. Like, is that really a hater to say that in your first U S championship appearance? Or should I just be saying this guy should win every race? And if I don't back him to win the Olympics, I'm, I'm a hater and a doubter. Well, John, there's a thread on let's run about this. I'm pulling this up. What's the deal with the gesture? Merlier did it yesterday after the tour de France win. They're saying, is this a new millennial fad? John, being the youngest guy on the podcast staff, I figure you'd know that this is like a common sports thing. You're silencing the critics. I think that's what it's supposed but to they, mean. They've done this celebration has been happening for years, but I'm saying what critics were there in Haywood Field, which is the home of the Ducks, where he was running. Like he runs for Oregon. He, it's filled with fans of Cole Hawker. Look, this is actually very important, John. And I know you don't like it when I play audio. I was going to play the audio from his press conference. Because this proves one of Rojo's maxims. And it's just, you you see this in the social justice movements and everything. It's all related to this. In this world, everyone wants to be a victim. I've been saying that on a a political sphere. People view that as negative, though. But uh, people love to be the underdog. And everyone plays up the fact that they're the underdog or a victim. I try to act like it. Oh, my God, as a white male, they're not letting us into Princeton anymore. Everyone likes to think, oh, you know, it's like, but then the tr- people, you know, minorities, oh, they're, they're racist. Oh, they're sexist. This, that. Uh, no, Clayton Murphy's going on to YouTube accounts and saying that, you know, so I rate that Jonathan Galt is now picking him as a gold medal favorite because he's like, this same guy was listed me as a possible for the Olympics. So you were doubting him. They look up and like, who was doubting Cole Hawker? We've been singing this guy's praises for six months. I think some, the only thing I can think of is some people and still myself think that the times don't mean as much, you know, as they used to be, but we still said he was incredible. The guy was winning NCAAs. I mean, I don't know who, yeah. Like he's like, I had to shut everyone up. Like, well, who was doubting you? People have been pretty much saying you're amazing for the last six months. I mean, Kubatia, the first I remember of it, he ran that Cole Hawker ran, I think seven forty six in a time trial back in the fall. And then he almost beat Centro at the trap meet. And then after they broke the DMR record, Oregon, back in the winter, Kubatia comes on and says, I think he's going to be like, the, he's the future of American distance running. And obviously Cooper trains with him. And at, at the time I was like, wow, that's really like, 
that's really high praise, especially because like Coupetier himself is really good. And then obviously it's been proven to be true. But yeah, Rob, I, I kind of agree with you. Like, I, I don't remember anyone say, oh, Cole Hawker, he's, I mean, maybe when he first ran 350, I'm like, okay, he's 19. Can he make it all the way to the trials? But it kind of became evident by the time of NCAAs, this guy's one of the best in the country. Shout out to Cooper Tier. One, he ran great at the trials, fourth place. But he nailed it about Cole Hawker. And this is kind of interesting, right? I, I guess he sees stuff. And I thought maybe he was giving, you know, uh, I don't know what what, what the pr- proper word is. Like, at the time, I thought maybe he was saying that to, like, because he wanted to beat Hawker. And, like, it wasn't sincere, sort of faint praise. But he sees the guy every day. And he must just know he's got this crazy gear. But Cooper Tier is probably the one guy in America now who has not lost the Cole Hawker in the mile. He's undefeated versus him in the 1500 mile, which is kind of crazy. But a big day for both those ducks. And Roberts, you know, loves to toot his own horn. Say how right he is about everything. And he, he was the first guy, I'm pretty sure, who said Yared Nagus would be on the Olympic team. He's been saying that for over a year. It came true. Thank you. But, yes, but he was saying, he was saying, now hold on, hold on. Thank you, thank you, thank you. He also said... Cole Hawker needs to turn pro right now. He'll never get more money. He'll never get more money. <laughs> Robert, admit you're wrong on that one. Winning the trials in that fashion while being unsigned. Ching-ching-ching. John, when I did say that, John said, what if he wins the trials? I said, look, they pay you based on potential. Could it possibly be any higher? And I'm still not sure that it's going to be higher. Why? Because Nike knows that he wants to stay with Nike. He probably wants to stay with Ben Thomas. Would Ben Thomas be allowed to coach somebody who wasn't a Nike athlete? I highly doubt it at the University of Oregon, although he probably could sue Oregon if he really wanted to. Because you know, on the side, what could, he, what, what could they stop him to do? But I don't think Ben's an idiot. But, folks, the, the, next, the person that bids up the price would be Adidas. And guess what? Adidas has spent their money. The one that maximized their money by going pro – before the big race was Hobbs Kessler. VIP subscribers are right. Right now, I'm going to reveal how much money I heard that Hobbs Kessler make. I don't want to reveal this to everybody else because I haven't confirmed this. This is the type of thing that you hear. And normally, you want to have two sources. I've heard it from one source. Now, the source is never wrong. So, VIP subscribers, here we go. Go to letsrun.com slash subscribe to take your love of letsrun.com to the next level. Get all the letsrun.com content. Bonus podcast, exclusive discounts on running shoes, and a lot more. Plus, if you become an annual member, you get a free Let's Run.com t-shirt and a summer training program. But even if Kessler is good, could he really, how much better is he going to be than Hawker is right now? I mean, there's a fascinating thread right now on the message board. Hawker versus Ingebrigtsen at the Olympics. Some people are saying it's a crazy talk. Other people are saying it's legitimate talk. And Certainly, let's talk about that a little bit right now. To say that he has good medal chances is legitimate to me. I don't understand why people act like that's shocking. Some idiots on the message board are like, his PR is only 335. He's running 335 with a 149 last close. He clearly can run way faster than that. He smoked Yared Nagos, who's run 334 in a non-rabbited race. Yared Nagos could probably run 333 or 332. When Andrew Weeding was in college, he ran 3.30 that summer. That was not in super shoes. I don't understand why Cole Hawker wouldn't be able to do that, if not faster. When Matthew Sintrich was in college, he won a bronze medal at the 2011 Worlds. 
So this guy's has certainly had better, I would say a better collegiate season than either one of them had when they were at their peak in college. So I, I don't understand why we don't think he can run under 330 and potentially get medal. And if you look at the Olympics with no Timothy Chariot, you know, the, the um the silver medalist John was who in, in 2019? McCluffy. He hasn't raced at all. The bronze medalist, Marcin Lewandowski, looks like crap this year. Okay. So and the, the, there you go. Like wh- who's unbeatable in this field? Then you've got Ingebrigtsen. Has Ingebrigtsen proven himself in a slow tactical race? Oh, I don't know about that. Is he that much good that he can front run this puppy? So we'll see what can happen. But I, I think this is going to be a wide open men's 1500. You're going to have um, Sensowitz, Hawker, Kerr, Whiteman, people like that, wide open, a ton of gold medal candidates. All right, Robert, I'm glad you mentioned the Brits because I think they're worth bringing up uh, and we'll get to them in a minute. But you're acting as if like, oh, well, Andrew Weeding ran 330 in the summer of 2010. So Cole Hawker should be able to run 330. He should be able to run sub 330. You just like, there's a difference between having an amazing close and being able to run 330 in a diamond league. Like Matthew Sensowitz's lifetime PR is 330. And, and Cole Hawker, like, no, how many American-born athletes have ever broken 330 for 1,500 meters, Robert? The answer is zero. None have ever done it. You're saying, like, this is just some easy thing. The reason Weeding ran 330 is because he went to freaking Monaco, which is always the fastest time race of the year, and he got in there and was able to be towed along. But, you, like, for Cole Hawker to run 331, we saw him in a time trial race against Yard Nagus and Cooper He got beat. He got beat by Cooper in the indoor mile back in February. Like, he he's an amazing runner, but running three thirty, they don't just grow on trees. Like you need to get in a great race environment, and you need to have the strength to be able to do it. Andy Weeding was a better eight hundred runner. Like you're just discounting Andy Weeding won the eight hundred and fifteen hundred NCAA's. That's freaking amazing. I don't think Cole Hawker could have done that this year. Actually, I know Cole Hawker couldn't have done that this year. So maybe right, Weeding may be better suited for the fifteen hundred because he's got a little bit more speed, but. Hawker's really good. First of all, I was looking this up over the weekend. I didn't watch the Pac-12 meet. At the Pac-12 meet, I was wondering, if Hawker had run the 5,000, John, do you think he would have made the team? I do. He smoked Cooper Tier in the 5,000 in the Pac-12s by like two seconds. So they were both doubling back from other events, and he, he destroyed him in the 5,000 there. He also ran the 800 at that meet. He was one second behind Isaiah Jewett, which is, you know, Jewett's really good, but he was right there like a few hundreds of a second behind um, the Oregon 800 guy who just ran Charlie Hunter, Charlie Hunter, who just ran 144. So he, he's got a good speed. One thing that was interesting was somebody pointed out, you know, if you go to the 2012 U.S. trials, the Centrowitz was there. He'd come, he'd medaled the year before. He came in as the favorite, and who beat him? Leo Manzano beat him with a sick close, and 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 and, and it's a very similar race. Um. Centrowitz in 2012 hit 800. He ran his, you know, third lap in 57. He ran a third lap in 57. His final 339, his final 339. But who beat him? Leo Manzano. And Manzano and Hawker had very similar splits. They both went out in 58 for the first lap. They both went 60 for the second lap. They both went 57 for the third lap. And then in the fourth lap, Manzano closed in 39.46. Hawker closed in 38.63. You've closed 0.8 of a second faster. Um, admittedly, some of those other splits were a little bit off, but they were. It was a 335.7 race for Manzano, 335.2 race for Hawker. Now, 
That's not factoring in super shoes, but he, you know, people, people were, some people on the message board were mocking Hawker because he didn't have a good PB saying that how could he metal his PB sucks. And I'm like, this person was pointing out, well, Manzano never had a good PB and he beat everybody, but one guy in the Olympics in 2012 and the trials race when he beat a Centrowitz was very similar to this race. So, um, you know, it, it was a really interesting post there. I, I may write an article about it. And I'm probably going to put up an, uh, an article where I go through the video. I thought Hawker um, was very patient. He made a really good inside pass between 500 and 400, which was good as well. Yeah, Robert, that 2012 versus 2021 trials comparison is very apt. There's a video, actually, Derek Johnson on Twitter, we'll put this in the show notes, tweeted out the final like 200 meters of both of those races. They're near identical. And Centro gets a little bit of a gap. Manzano moves at the same time as Hawker. And like you said, this you know splits are fairly similar. And again, Centro Manzano and Centro went two four in the Olympics that year. Do I think that Cole Hawker and Centro could go two four in the Olympics this summer? Absolutely. So uh, I think that you made a good point there. There's a great thread on the on the boards, essentially discussing all these races. John, we need to make sure that Twitter threads in there as well. But it's called. Put it in the show notes. Hawker final 100 meters, 12.2. And the gist of the thread becomes, is this the greatest close ever in a 335 race? And there starts talking about Sebco, this, and I, I guess there is the Manzano mention as well. But you're in high company when they're comparing you to Sebco. So, yes, a 330 race is very different. But 330 races are pretty rare at the Olympics. And I think one of the things with the 1500 is that time trialing is so different than tactical races. And we've seen that in the history of the Olympics, right? 2000, Hisham el he was like unbeatable. He loses the Olympics. So then 2004, when he comes back and win, it was a huge deal. But they're like, can he do it with the pressure of the Olympics without a rabbit? And I, the question now is, will Timothy Chariot be on the U.S. Olympic team, excuse me, the Kenyan Olympic team? And I think after Monaco, there's a chance he might be, and that would really change the Olympics. But Chariot is the only place he really loses is championship races. He dominated the world last time because he time trialed it. But if he tries to do that this year, I think Ingerbitson will, will try to go with him. That's the type of race where there'd be a lot of question marks about Hawker, more so, it, but also Centrowitz too. Absolutely. Um, I think that's pretty. I mean, that's a pretty good place to leave it, unless you got anything else. Because we spent about twenty minutes talking about this fifteen hundred. There are more races to discuss. Well, it, it was a great race, John, but I want to say one other thing. I mean, people are talking about comparing it to great closes of all time. The, the 2004 Olympic final with Hisham al was a 334 race, but that close was, that was probably the height of the EPO era too. But I mean, that thing was at a whole nother level. Like I may, maybe I'll, I'll take a look at this Derek Johnson video and maybe make my own video because I mean, al would have destroyed these guys in, in, in that race. But one last thing about this race. I thought about leading the show with a clip of Lee Diffie describing this race because this was the race that we had hyped up for months. And if you want to talk about, you know, someone needs to send this to, to World Athletics. If you want to talk about how not to market the sport, it's this convoluted qualifying for qualification system. This race that the fans have been waiting on forever. He crosses the finish line and then the American the Australian announcer announcing on, on, on US TV is like, but wait, he doesn't have the standard. We'll have to figure out if he gets into the Olympics. Look, he's getting into the Olympics, but the fact of the matter that the announcer doesn't understand the system that is so complicated is a travesty and a disgrace. World Athletics, to, the, the, you can make two simple solutions between now 
2022 that makes the sport much more marketable. One, make the doubles possible. We want to have, imagine like the women's 200. If we had Dina Asher-Smith, Shawnee Miller-Lebo, Gabby Thomas, all these women in instead of everyone dodging each other. Um, So make the doubles doable. And then if a country has like five people, they're going to be going to the Olympics, let them send whatever three they want to send. We don't need to have some announcer doubting who's going to go to the Olympics right when the race ends. Yeah, uh-huh. a simple solution to keep the world ranking system would be if there's if a country has more than three auto qualifiers or five, pick some number, which the U.S. had, and they have a trial system. You can pick whoever you want for the team. Do you guys see this? I'm showing up for the video watchers. Good things happen when you go for it, Alan Webb. It's a plate that Weldon had. Plate. I've taken it from the bathroom, so I feel a little dirty, but at my sister-in-law and brother-in-law's first time I ever come here and use the restroom. That's sitting there. Alan Webb, world famous. And they had no idea who Alan Webb was. They thought he was some philosopher or something. So it's true. You go for it. You're often rewarded. Or you can come up short like um, Leah Fallon. But I think with her thing, that's why people respect it. People were afraid in life, I think, to go for it. Put it all up there and come up short. But how often do you really regret doing that? Well, I guess there's a question to be asked about the 2005 World Championship final on Webb, and he went for it, didn't work out. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, well, actually, one other thing I wanted to talk about was just comparing that close. We were saying, was that the greatest close in a 335 race? Well, a few people pointed out on the message boards that, like, no, let's run love for Josh Kerr and Jake Whiteman at the British trials. It's like, well, yeah, we were we were at the American trials, and we were an American website, so we were that's the meet we were covering, but. We'll give them some love now because that was that race was almost as good as Hawker versus Centrowitz if you watch their duel over the final 200. And those guys, they grew up competing for the same club. Edinburgh, uh, I think it's Edinburgh Athletics Club. Uh, they're both from Edinburgh, though. So it was really sweet to see that because we knew, you know, there were a bunch of good British middle distance runners this year. Kerr had soloed that 331 a few weeks ago in Portland. Jake Whiteman ran 329 last year so those guys are both studs and look at that last 300 splits cole hawker's last 300 38 64 centro was 39 04 the british trials the final 300 was 37 86 leader to leader josh kerr who won the race was actually fourth at 1200 meters so his final 300 was close to 37 low and i will say he made his move at 300 so he was like sort of surging from that point the race was a little slower, 340 versus 335, whereas Hawker didn't really get moving until like 120. But he still closed about a second and a half faster than Cole Hawker. So it's just a reminder. And Whiteman was right there with him. Like White, Whiteman was going stride for stride down the home straight. So that was a terrific race. Those guys are both very fit. And you got to talk about them as medal contenders too, both of the, the top two Brits, Whiteman and Kerr. I've always held Kerr in the highest regard. He's got an amazing speed. He's a great racer. And I do think that one thing when I'm making this video, analyzing Hawker's tactics, was a, if you actually watch, if you can go back and watch the last Worlds, you know, um, 1500, everybody's there with 200 to go. Just like USA's. Everybody in that race was there with 200 goes. And it may just, be, there's more, it was, it may be harder to find space in the last 100. So if you're that far back, it might be hard to catch up. There's a message board poster that's broken down the 200. It was 25-2 in, in Britain, 25-3 for Hawker. Really similar. Um, and 
I, I like this one poster, 2600 bro, who wrote Centro and Hawker, though, both have that je ne sais quoi. Is that how oh you say it, John? God. Oh, no, it's not how you say it. Je ne sais quoi. Je ne sais quoi. Come on. Apologize to my French neighbors that it takes to medal at the global final. We haven't seen that from Jacob. So this person said, well, we haven't seen it from Hawker either, but he's already giving that to Hawker. But we just, I, I, I really, it's going to be, you know, amazing on that front. Speaking of amazing folks, have you guys and gals checked your prediction contest scores in the running warehouse prediction contest? It's so much fun to play fantasy track and field folks. John, a lot of people weren't up to 3am listening to the daily nightly podcast. Not everyone's a VIP subscriber in case you missed out folks. I have destroyed Weldon and Jonathan in the prediction contest and proven my brilliance yet again. Yet, yet again. When do you ever do well in these prediction contests, Robert? Like, I'll let you talk here because you're probably not going to win another one for like three years. But Jesus, this is the motivation I need to do well in the next contest is to make sure you're not, you know, patting yourself on the back and your head doesn't explode on the next on, on the podcast. But go ahead. You you earned it this time. Did I not say that Jenny Simpson would not make the Olympic team? Did I not? Did I say that Jared Nagus would make the Olympic team? And I, and I, I forgot. I finished like in the top 5% of, of this contest that we had this week but i haven't went back to april's show and added up the olympians where we predicted the olympians i predicted 21 of 30 weldon had 18 and john you just had 17 john didn't get a single men's 10,000 meter runner picked on the team correctly you know just a dina castor calls you a human stat book and and that's true like it's like you're a computer but you don't understand the sport as essence right so so, Ro, i do have a question though you are the same person who was complaining before the men's 1500. I meant to pick Centrowitz. It's somehow this system must be flawed. I don't understand. I know I picked Centrowitz. It has me down for Hawker. Can I fix this? This is a po- old problem. And I'm like, no, Robert, you don't have an excuse. You run the website that puts on this contest. You have to live with your pick. And somehow, like bank error in your favor you come out on top, you get a perfect order in that event. That basically is why you won the contest because you meant to pick Centro and accidentally picked the wrong guy. John, don't, don't expose my, my next level thinking, John. It's like how, when we actually made those picks at the time, I didn't pick a thing Mo to make the team. But then the next week I said, for the record, I want to claim that I think Mo will be on the team now that she ran a 416, 1500. So... Yes, because if Hawker hadn't won that race, I would have been on this podcast saying playing the clip from last week where I said I won his centroids. So I, I play. If you're a smart media member, John, you 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 do different things and you have enough predictions and you just remember them. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, we're 30 minutes in, and we have talked more than one race because we did talk about Kessler's contract. We have talked about the British trials, but we've probably talked about some other races. But w- one more thing, though, in a really slow race, John. Josh Kerr, I don't think you can be in that spot. He had too much ground to make up. And I'd almost say the same thing about you mean Hawker. Ha- Hawker, too. Both of them, Robert. On a very slow race, you don't want to be fourth at the bell like that. Fourth is, I mean... Too what, much ground to make up. You have to be in the top three to medal? Or to, like... No, you can come from fourth. Like That's why Sintra won the Olympics. He ran the shortest distance. If Centro's a half, unless you're a half a second better than Centro, you better be right with him. That's all I'm saying. And Hawker somehow, I mean, that last 150, it was unbelievable. And it, actually, the change of gears does remind me a bit of Manzano. So, where should we go next, guys? I think this is a distance podcast, so we got to go. I think, Mo. 
breakout star. I mean, we already knew she was good. She had the U.S. leading times in 400 and 800, but there were big question marks. How would she do in the rounds? How would she do competing against Ajay Wilson, Raven Rogers, Kate Grace, and crew? I mean, this woman's 800 was stacked, and she, like, A-plus Grand Slam hit it out of the park, right? Yeah. I mean, she just went out there and showed, hey, uh, no one else is even close to me in this race. She totally dominated. She closed in 28 seconds. Is a world leader. You know, if you look at the number, the women behind her on the world list, she's number one. Rosemary Almanza of Cuba. She ran 156.42 in Spain, but she's been around for a while and she's never done really anything of significance in a global final. So I'm kind of discounting her. I think the woman that Mo might have to worry about is the winner of the Ethiopian trials, Wuha Gedichu, who hadn't really done anything. And she runs 156.6 to win the Ethiopian trials. And then after that, it's for Wayne Hailu of Ethiopia and then Raven Rogers, number five at 157.66. And we just saw Mo destroy Rogers. So the Ethiopian woman is just shocking to me. She's like 25 or 26. She doesn't have a birthday in a world of athletics. So total wild card there. Yeah, but I, I think that if you think big picture, like take a step back, you know, we were doing the nightly podcast, but like what is the biggest story of the trials? And a positive front for the U.S. from the distance standpoint, it has to be, I think, though. I mean, we knew, we thought that she had this potential, but this was no guarantee. This woman hadn't run an 800 at this level ever in her life, you know, and we'd seen Donovan Brazier have an amazing collegiate season five years ago and flame out of the trials. You know, would she go out too hard? Would she not pace it right? Would she do everything? I thought the way she ran it was just really calm and collected. And then she was able to pick it up to 28.5 for the last 200, whereas everybody else, almost except for Raven Rogers, was slowing down. It was amazing. So that age, I'll think Mo is legit, was, a, was probably the biggest storyline to me. Also, the fact that LJ Wilson has been hurt. We didn't know that. We still don't know what the deal is. She still won't tell us what the deal was, which is driving me nuts. But clearly wasn't at top form. I was incredibly impressed, though, by the way she ran. People are like, what do you mean? I'm like, she's used to being up front. She's used to be, she was patient enough, trusted herself enough, knows her body well enough to not try to force it, not try to stick with other people, to react to other people. She was six coming off the final turn and now is on the Olympic team. I think if she had run this impatiently, which Weldon doesn't agree with me, I think Kate Grace ran incredibly impatiently in that race. Um, you know, she might not have made the team. So I, I thought that was a cool story. Obviously, the biggest storyline from the men's standpoint, I think also comes in the main, in men's 800. But we thought we'd have metal hopes in the 1500. I think in the long distances, we don't really have a metal hopes. <laughs> Maybe Chalima in the 5,000, but Brazier being out, gigantic. And Clayton Murphy coming up as a gold medal favorite, I think, depending on what Nigel Amos does, is huge. I mean, we... we we know we weren't predicting that a week ago. How are you still stuck on Nigel Amos? Like, why? I, I guess he ran one forty one like two years ago. But like, why is he the guy that Clayton Murphy has to beat? I, I just don't understand your obsession with this guy. He's one of the greatest eight hundred meter runners ever. When he's got it going on, no, John. he's one of the fastest by personal best. His medal record in major championships is one silver medal when he was eighteen years old. You can't call him one of the greatest eight hundred runners ever. Okay, he's the only guy that I think that 
I'm like, okay, on his best day and Murphy's on his best day, I know Murphy can't touch it. The other people I, I, I think that I know that Murphy can run with. There's no one in this field that I think is, is leaps and bounds better than him on his best day. Yes, Amos never seems to get it right. His his style of running and what is he going to do? Front run a 141? I mean, I I don't know, but I just I I'm waiting to see what he's done. He's never gotten the peak right. He's going to be running soon. They really have barely raced him, so I don't know if that's because he's always getting hurt or what. I've always thought that if you had some of these supreme talents with sort of Western coaching, they would do better. But he's been over in the U.S. for a number of years and still hasn't gotten it better. So. Yeah. Also, to go back to Mo for a second, I'm just excited. One of the things I'm even more excited than just her 800 potential is I love me a good 400, 800 runner. We don't see many of them these days. They're kind of a dying breed. But the two people that she kind of reminds me of, I mean, one, the legend, Alberto Wadzarena, won the 400 and 800 at the 1976 Montreal Olympics. I want to see her try the Wadzarena in 2024. I know we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but. I want to see her try that one time at the Olympics, the 4.8. And also Joel Miles Clark, who was the former American record holder in the 800 until RJ Wilson broke it a couple of years ago. And she was also the world champion in the 400 back in 1993. Joel Miles Clark, her PRs were 49.40 and 156.40. A thing Mo's already faster for 800. And she's run 49.57 for 400, and she's 19 years old. So it's pretty crazy to see how she stacks up to Joe Miles Clark already. Okay, a couple things about a thing, Mo. I mean, Robert said it wasn't a foregone conclusion. We're just, like, taking it for granted. It's amazing her transformation this year. She was this prep phenom. She set the U.S. American record at 600 as a high school junior, I believe. But... And she considered herself an 800-meter runner. But, Robert, I want you to tell me I think most 800-meter PR before this year. I'm putting you on the spot because I think Jonathan will probably get it right. I believe it was 202. Yeah, 201. Wait. Oh. 201.17? I think that's exactly it, John. Thank you. Very good job. Walking stat book, you know. Her PR until this year was 201.17. Last year, now granted this was COVID, but these were before COVID. Her two 800s. We're 204 and 214. She ran a 214 in Albuquerque. I don't know if she fell down or what happened. But so she goes to Texas A&M, you know, a huge recruit. She's blasting these good 400s and 800s this year. But I mean, 201 to 156 is like just a whole nother level. Now with her speed, we thought that was possible, but... I remember last year at some point wondering, like, hey, is she just a 400-meter runner who's kind of got a little more endurance than most? Like, is it going to really take her a long time to be great on her 800-meter runner? And I don't think her coach, this guy needs to get some more credit. I don't. I know nothing about him. Milton Mallard? I mean, no one's asking, is she going to stay with Milton Mallard? She's already said that she is. Oh, she did? Okay, good. I didn't hear her interviews at the, at the trials because... And everything had to be during Zoom. So you pretty much, you know, like John would get a thing Mo and I would get Raven Rogers, Rajay or something. Um, so that's good to hear because they're clearly working. And this guy has coached also the last, what, three NCAA champions on the women's side? Is that right? Was he, I don't know if he was coaching Sammy Watson. Was Elaine Francique there, still there or not? I'm not totally sure. That whole situation was never totally clarified why Elaine Francique left. But also, remember, Brandon Miller almost won the NCAAs on the men's side as well. I think Milton Mallard coaches both men and women at Texas A&M, I think, right? 
Yeah, I mean he's and he had Devin Dixon the year before. I mean Texas A and M is eight hundred U. Like, and it's crazy. They don't have different coaches. And some people on the boards were talking about Aline Francique. I'm like, that guy's been gone for like three years. He's not the coach. Like, this Milton Mallard guy needs some credit. And hopefully he's going to get paid extra on the side. Well, I'm, I'm glad that Texas A&M is going to let her train there. Because when Donovan Brazier went pro, right, they didn't really want him around. So he had to get a new coach. And they kind of squandered for a year. So, I think it's a smart move for Pat Henry sort of to evolve with the times. It kind of reminds me of Duke's Mike Krzyzewski. He didn't used to like the one and dones. And then he's like, okay, if I want to be competitive, I need it. I don't, it's a positive to your university to have her around training with the team, going to the college. She's still a Texas A&M university student. It looks good. Why does, does the average person really care if they're running track for A&M versus running tra- track for USA? And what's interesting to me is I'm not sure though, because you're now allowed to sign endorsement deals. Could she possibly still run in college? Can she sign a multi-million dollar deal with Nike, which is already the sponsor of Texas A&M, and still run collegially? I don't think that's really been clear to me if if we're going to be able to have people stay in the college system and still sign pro contracts because I, I think you know that would be really interesting if you could do that. Um, we talked about her sort of arriving as an 800, you know, God really which, you know, we've seen a lot of team phenoms not live up to the hype. She clearly is. But because, you know, if she hadn't made this team or hadn't dominated, people are like, why didn't she run the four? So this is her love. It was a risky thing, and they've done an amazing job. What I'm worried about for her and Hawker both moving forward is, like, who are they going to be training with for the next month? The college kids are done. Everyone's gone home. The campuses are empty. Like, their training partners, you know, it's hard to do a workout totally by yourself. So I hope that Cooper Tears just st- sticks around. I mean, I'm not really that worried about them doing workouts solo. For I mean, I'm sure there is someone in Eugene who they can find to pace a few reps for Cole Hawker if they need him to. Is Jerry Schumacher going to answer it? Wow. Wow. Yes, pick it up. Jerry? Hey, Robert. Hey. <laughs> Sorry. I'm in the middle of recording my podcast with Weldon and John, but what's going on? We'll meet you, Robert. I didn't know you were going on right now. That's okay. Wait, tell Jerry we're playing this audio. Proof he's been on our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) You're muted, Robert. Wow. We muted you, Robert. Oh, I wanted to hear what you were saying. But John, we got, you know, there's talk of Jerry Schumacher coming on the podcast. My aunt can read lips, John. I'll send this to my aunt and she can read the lips. But should we just go there right now, John? And then well, maybe we should wait till Robert comes back. But to me, let's talk a little bit. Fine. We'll talk up because Jerry's one of the things. Let's just talk about the atmosphere at the trials a bit. Like what people were talking about. The lack of attendance. So a couple big pictures things for me. One, the stadium is unbelievable. Uh, Google was reminding me, you know, like three, five years today or go today or something and it was showing the old Hayward field. No offense to n- all the nostalgic people, but it was a dump. I, people are rolling over now saying, a oh, dump? oh, come on. That's, that's too harsh. Well then I like the old Hayward field. It, the new one's nicer, but it was not a dump, uh, but fine. It, it looks so small. I mean, dump's not the right word. I'm it's a little hyperbole, but 
I was looking at it like I'm amazed this thing only seats 12,000 because it looks so much bigger. The old ones, they said like 11, but I think Ken Go counted all the seats and it was like 10 something. Um, this one just looks so much better. But there's not a bad seat. I think also if, if you took out the seats and had people sit on benches, this probably could seat a lot more people. But it's beautiful. It's just stunning. There's going to be a lot of questions on, on the worlds. People were complaining about the jumbotrons and then the rumor from some oregon people was that they're gonna put a huge jumbotron now at 150 to go and that would take out 5,000 temporary seats for worlds no you can't do that the jumbotrons were fine they were manageable you need as many people as possible there for the worlds they committed i think to like 27.5 over 25,000 they'd have to double the capacity i don't think that's possible and I, I remember some people at the time saying, oh, they will never hit the world's number they're saying. Like, they're just kind of giving this wink-wink to the IAAF World Athletics to make them happy. Phil Knights or, or the state of Oregon is on the hook for the money, and they're using it to promote tourism. So if they just want to cover the shortfall, I think that's fine. That's the other thing. Nobody came to these trials. Attendance was terrible. I'm kind of shocked. I give credit. They released actual attendance every day the tickets people who went through the turnstiles not tickets sold and it was pretty low john yeah so two two things first to address your point about worlds the what i've heard most recently from a few people in the know is that they're not adding any temporary seats at all it's just going to be 12 six that's the the stadium right now and that's all that they're going to have even though the minimum requirement for hosting worlds was supposed to be thirty i've heard that they may just be keeping it, okay, we're just going to fill, fill the stadium. I, and look, if they fill the stadium with 12,650, that's going to be a great atmosphere. Those people will be able to make noise. And I do think back to Doha, that stadium, there can't have been 12,000 people in the first few days of that stadium. And the atmosphere was better when it was filled. But at the same time, like Eugene's kind of remote. I think they could get 25,000 people per night if they wanted, but... There's not a lot of hotel rooms in Eugene. Like it's kind of hard to get to John, anywhere. I, I what? What's your point? You've heard they're only going to keep twelve. Can you tell me who you heard that from? I don't think they're liable to say, but I've heard a couple people mention that to me that they were they're not going to expand the seats at all. That's not confirmed, but I've heard that was sort of the word that was going around with a few people. One, it, that's dishonest. It shouldn't have happened. They shouldn't have the world's at a 12,000-seat stadium. Unless, I guess, all that really matters is the money that comes into IWF. And so maybe big picture thing also. The other thing that uh, – I want to get into this more. But sort of my other big takeaway was, oh, my gosh, who's going to lose all this money on the USAs? Um, you know, there was no spectators. Essentially, we had 41,000 spectators over 10 days. I mean, that's terrible. I, we should try to look up the 2016 attendance. But, John, they were getting near 20,000 a day. So you say they can't get more, but they were getting 20,000 a day at the last USA's. Yeah, last no, I trial. think they can get more. But I, I think the the question I have for you, well, first of all, well, th- remember, this Wells was handed to Eugene without a bid. It was basically Lamine Diak saying the USA is a major market that we want to serve and kind of improve. And we're going to send the Worlds there, even though you know the bidding process is not exactly above board. So for them to now say, you know, relent on the attendance thing as well wouldn't be a total shock to me. But my question to you is, do you think these depressed attendance numbers were solely due to the uncertainty due to COVID or was it more indicative of a larger just declining interest in the sport? Because the last two USAs they had in Des Moines, there also weren't a lot of fans at those meets either. Is this because 
the meets just aren't popular for people to go to? Or is it because there was a lot of uncertainty with COVID with all the tickets being refunded and then some made available at the last minute and you know the, the guidelines changing day by day? Well, I think it shows that Tracktown USA is sort of a myth. They have more track fans there, but a lot of them are into ducks, that sort of stuff. Eugene gets packed because track fans throughout the country go there. COVID sure made things different, but I guarantee, I mean, like the Portland Timbers, I think we're getting 20,000 people at a game already. There was ticketing snafus with like tickets not being refunded and tickets on the app. So maybe a lot more tickets were actually sold than people attended. But if this was an Oregon Duck football game, John, I guarantee more than people would have found a way to go. Right. Yeah, so I think yeah. I think it's a combination of things. But my big picture is the Nike stock, I should look up the numbers, but the Nike stock was up 15% on the last Friday of the trials. 15%, somewhere in that ballpark. Phil Knight made, I, I don't know the number, but like $2 billion, $5 billion that day, extra. And the big question for the sport to me is like, what sort of legacy is he going to leave? I know there's a nonprofit to kind of promote Eugene 2022 and stuff after Eugene 22 leading up to 2028. And... For me, the question becomes, when he departs, does he leave a huge endowment for track and field? And I think I, at the very least, would like to see something for training groups. I mean, he could go huge if he wanted to. There's not a lot of money in track and field in the United States, the college system. The college system's where all the money's at in the high school system. We had the speeder system built in. But in the pros, I would love to know the absolute number of dollars spent. Phil Knight could fund it probably all in eternity with an endowment. Let's say that, let's say just for kicks, he made $2 billion on Friday. Let's just say he just decides that's going to endowment for track. You kick off the money five or 10% a year right there. That's a hundred million. That could be a hundred million dollars a year to track. A lot of rich people, they want to leave stuff to whatever the museums, the colleges, maybe he wants to give to Oregon, but I hope he gives some of the money to track and but I guess money on its own, own, you need more than that. You need a vision and what they're going to do with it. But at the very least, I would love to see them fund some training groups to make sure that the Bowerman Track Club can continue. Sorry, guys, I'm back. Sounds like y'all been talking attendance. I had to take a call from a very, very prominent coach. Getting calls left and right from prominent coaches. You said who it was on the podcast, Robert. I don't think we're going to take that out. That was a call from Jerry Schumacher. We're okay admitting that. I don't know if I want that on the podcast, but anyways, um, this attendance thing was confusing to me. I mean, it didn't seem like there was, I, I think part of it is it's impossible to get to Eugene, but that's true. It was true four years ago or eight years ago, whenever they always had the trials there. I think also part is like, you've got a diehard amount of people that want to go, you know, there's tens of thousands of people that would go to the trials every time, but they don't want to go to Eugene every single time, new stadium or not. So they're going to go to Eugene this year. Then they're going to go to Eugene for Worlds next year. If you're, if you're planning family vacations, you want it to, to move around a little bit, A. But B, also, if you're planning your family vacation, you want to know that you can go more than three weeks beforehand. So I think a lot of people just said, screw it, we're not going to go at the last minute. They were maybe would have gone to the trials, but instead they're going to go to Cape Cod or whatever. So I, I still thought you would get more than that. you know. But in terms of Track Town USA and the Hayward Magic, like I feel like, there's like 1,500 people that are Ducks fans that go to the track meets, but it's not a huge number. It's not like there's 20,000 people coming down from Portland. So again, we should not have every meet there. We should not have the 2022 Worlds and the 2024 trials. You know, We know in 2028 they're going to go to L.A. I would actually say don't have the L.A. trials, though. In I, I would put the 2024 trials at Mount Sac and then the 2028 trials back at Hayward. So 
I, I think you need to change it up. Weldon talked about Phil Knight leaving a legacy because we need more pro teams. Speaking of pro teams, Mary Kane has started a pro team, a women's pro team in the New York City area, and they're going to get some. They've got. They're going to get some rich fat cats to back it, and a couple corporate sponsors. I think they're going to pay people a salary. I think sixty thousand dollars a year. And they're going to get health insurance, and they're going to do volunteer work on the side. I think it's an an a neat concept. It's kind of really not any different than the concept of what Tracksmith's paying her. Like you can run on the side and do a job on the side. Like this is the same thing. But what's interesting to me is I don't think we need more teams. I've never thought we need more teams. We've got so many damn teams now. Uh, like if you actually look at the people that made the Olympic team, the best development system in this country, it's called the NCA system. There's hundreds and thousands, there's there's thousands of athletes literally that have four years to develop to show that they're good enough to be a professional runner. If you look at who made the U.S. distance team, every single one of them, excuse me, if you look at who made the Olympic team, of all the people that have a medal shot, every single one of them was an absolute college star, distance-wise, except for Hillary Bohr. Hillary Bohr was not that good in college. I think he was like fourth at NCAAs as a junior. And then he was like 12th as a senior. Woody Kincaid, Woody Kincaid. Woody Kincaid's not a medal hopeful. RJ Wilson didn't go to college just for the record. Well, yeah. So if you're good enough to go proud of high school, but. With that close and a slow race, he's a medal threat. But Robert, I don't think you heard one thing also. John heard they may not expand any seats for the world and they're going to have 12,500 people for the world's every day. Just a rumor, unconfirmed, but I heard it from a couple people. And why? The thing I heard was to get the 30,000, someone said that the portable stands would have to be as high as the torch. You couldn't pay me to sit that high up. I'd be afraid I was going to die. That's the thing. Like, it's like if you look at the stadium, there's really only room to expand it at the north end of the stadium. None of the other places, there's no room to add seats anywhere else. And if they're adding a video board, they might not even add that. And like some of the, it's not like a level surface where they would be adding seats. It would kind of be tricky there. So I I think that's one of the reasons they might just say structurally, it might not be safe to add seats. Okay. What I don't understand though, is the big takeaway after the trials was a lot of people were on Twitter saying, wow, Hayward is an amazing stadium when the meets are run at night. Are you kidding me? That's a huge design flaw. So the, the stadium's great at night, but we, if you put it at night, no one in America can watch it because they're asleep, and all of Europe is asleep as, as well. So this is a great stadium for night meets, which is terrible for having big meets. So this may just be a great place to have regional meets and time trials for the West Coast people. What do you mean night, Robert? They had great performances the day before in the day. Like, why do people say it's a great meet for night meets? Like, that is a lot of people told me that. A lot of people on Twitter were saying that. Someone in person said that. They said, oh, it's such a better atmosphere Saturday and Sunday night than it was the other days of the trials. I don't know if it was better atmosphere. It looked very nice lit up, but I thought it was pretty great on the Monday, too, when you had the 1500 and Clayton Murphy. I mean, if the heat hadn't been the highest, it's literally the highest it's ever been in Eugene, Oregon, I think it would have been fine to have the final t- t- day of trials in the day, and you would have still had some great performances. I mean, what they should have done for TV was have it at 10 a.m., could have been live on the East Coast, could have been live everywhere, and you could have taped delayed it. Yeah. And America missed those moments. I mean, it's you can't say for certain, obviously, that Sidney McLaughlin would have set the world record. The races would have been different. It was a great atmosphere at night. But America missed out. Okay. A few other trials-related points. Brazier's obviously the biggest disappointment. 
And I think it's going to come out. Inside sources have told me that he's a lot more injured than he thought he was. He didn't realize it at the time. So look for that to be coming in the next few days. But other than Brazier, who was the biggest disappointment? I, and I, I distance-wise, for me, I'm sort of torn. I'm not sure between Sean McGordy and Joe Set Norris. I mean, McGordy falls down. I mean, stops to put on his shoe, runs 825. I timed it. He was out for 10 seconds. I thought for sure he could run 815. He was just terrible in the final. I just totally didn't bring it. Now, he's a bigger guy. I say the bigger people struggle in the heat. I don't know. And then Josette Norris, I mean, she destroyed in the 1500 a few weeks before the trials. She destroyed Heather McLean by four seconds. Heather McLean makes the 1500-meter team, and, and Josette Norris was nowhere to be seen in the 5000 race. Well, I mean, Josette Norris has done nothing until this year, so she's a huge star. I don't, I mean, the fact she doesn't make it, she, I don't, she can't be my biggest disappointment. And she destroyed Heather McLean because didn't Heather McLean run like crap? Didn't she run like 410? So that's not like Josette Norris ran a 402. Um, so yeah, I think probably Sean McGordy was pretty disappointing. I expected him to make the team and maybe be a medal contender in the steeplechase and, he got beat by, you know, some guys who no one's expecting to do those things. He was just a total non-factor. Yeah, that was. He basically said that his legs didn't feel great, and then that kicked sort of a negative field feedback cycle where mentally he was like, "Shoot, my legs should be feeling better for this stage of the race." And then he kind of psyched himself out. So that wasn't great for Sean. But I mean, I think a lot of the times I'm looking, I'm trying to find like disappointments. A lot of times it's just the top three ran really freaking well. And it's kind of hard to be like too disappointed when you get by beat some, by some great performances. One woman, I guess I'm looking at in the 1500, Shannon Osika, she gets fourth. One of the things, I mean, she's run, she ran four flat in that race where Ellie Puria ran 358 back at Mount Sac. And I was just like, okay, four flat, like, you would think a time trial kind of race, which is what we had in the trials final, would benefit someone who ran four flat in a time trial style race behind Ellie Puria. And for what maybe she didn't have the same fitness she did a month ago at Mount Sac, but she was fourth in 40218. That that to me is a little disappointing. If you ran four flat in the same kind of race, you can only run 402 in the trials. That's a fair point. But if I'm her for the rest of my life, I'm still wondering why in the hell was Heather McClain even placed in that final? And this is one of the things that's so arbitrary about being an Olympian is if, if in my mind, USATF doesn't make the wrong call and put McLean in that final, we're not complaining about her not running a perfect race because she still would have been the on the Olympic team. So it's interesting too, to think about Craig Ingalls. I mean, he was fourth five years ago. Now he's fourth again this time. Probably will never be an Olympian, but is he a failure? I think he's in good shape. He just got beat by somebody better. And what's crazy is if this race was held last year, Centrowitz was hurt, so he's probably not making the team. Would Hawker and Nagus really have been there? Nagus could have been. Nagus was the NCAA champ in 19, so I think 20. Yeah, he might have Hawker, been I think, might have been a year away, though. He barely beat he barely beat Craig in this race. So a year ago, Craig might have beaten him. So Craig Ingalls probably would be an Olympian if this was held in time. So now the rest of his life is, oh, I didn't make it. I wasn't good as a pro because I couldn't make the damn Olympics. It, you know, it's so arbitrary. And then Joseph Norris, I mean, it's not really fear right to be saying she's a disappointment. She started the year with a 1529 PB came all the way down to 1452. That's how amazing the year was. I was thinking about it in terms of the positive, who was the most shocking Olympian. And I think in terms of like 
some would say Heather McLean, but someone who's run two flat and 405 coming into the year, that's not that shocking. Now, the fact that she lost, ran 410 and lost to Joe Set Norris right before the trials is pretty shocking. I would say that the most shocking Olympian at the beginning of the year has to be Val Constein. I mean, this is a woman that had a 944 PB. She just ran 918 to make the Olympic team. Yeah, and that's an event where we didn't think there were any spots available because Coburn, Frerex, and Quigley would have just been like, all right, that's the team. So yeah, if you're saying start of the year, I think Constein probably is the the pick. But like at the meet, like going into the, again, Heather McLean, even if she didn't get advanced, like she was in, she she would have had the time qualifier to the finals, basically. She shouldn't even get that. So to, you know, to then make the team after that, they, like how often do you see someone scrape into the final and then make the team? It's It's pretty rare. Yeah. What's interesting too, though, is how, when I was looking at the prediction contest and like whatever, um, picking the winner is much easier than picking third. And this get, this gets me to another point. Like it's like a bell curve. And I've always said the difference between first and 10th, like an NCAA cross is probably as big as the difference between 10th and 50th or 50th and a hundred. Like the first place, the, the very best person in the world is often way better than everybody else, or it has a much bigger, wider margin of error. People always talk about Sintowitz, the master tactician. Well, one of the reasons why he's the master tactician is because he's got an amazing skill set that most people don't have. Most people can't control a race from the front because they don't have a 13 flat 5,000 BB and they can't run 144 for 800. Like, so when you're the very best, it's much easier. I actually looked at it. I picked 14 of the 20 winners on the track in the prediction contest correctly. Getting the winner is pretty easy because they're better than everybody else. So... That's why when they do come up short, it's kind of all the more obvious. But um, it just reminds me that sort of everything really, you know, is a bell curve. And that's why when I got back to that, it ties into that point of why we don't need all these pro teams because the very biggest talents pretty much stand out. Well, Robert, speaking of picking winners, it's interesting. I Finally, this makes sense. Your notes in the – google doc we use to run these shows because i read that i read the sentence you had and you say picking winner is pretty easy as they are an outlander 14 of 20 and i was like what the hell does this mean and i was trying to pause it and i realized you meant outlier instead of outlander and now i'm like oh okay well, it makes sense but speaking of like holding ourselves accountable at the start of june i wrote an article i gave out my locks for the 2020 Olympic team for the United States distance events. I gave out six, I gave out eight locks. Donovan Brazier, Bryce Hopple, Ajay Wilson, Matthew Centrowitz, Shelby Houlihan, Ellie Puria, Emma Coburn, and Courtney Frericks. And I have to hang my head in shame because a lock is supposed to mean 100%. They're on the team. There's no doubt about it. And two of my locks did not make the team. And that was Donovan Brazier, obviously, who was you know, not operating hundred percent and Shelby Houlihan who had not raced at all in 2021. And I'm like, it's fine. She ran a time trial, you know, she'll run the trials. Right. And if she does, she'll make the team. Well, she didn't even run the trials. So I'm taking the L on those two. My other six locks did make the team. Though. I mean, a drug suspension and injury. Uh, if someone gets injured, I don't know if that counts as invalidating your lock, John. So I'm actually willing to give you the benefit of the doubt. Um, so, you guys were talking about the biggest long shots. I I agree. Val Constein was, I mean, no one thought she had a chance this year and shout out to Tracksmith, founded by my college teammate, Matt Taylor. 
they had this what's it called? They're essentially they sponsored all the unsponsored athletes at the trials. And they got two Olympians, two distance Olympians. I think they got like six or seven total. But I'm not shocked you can get a like the third place javelin thrower on the Olympics. But when you read the details of this program, I mean, the other shoe companies are just be like kicking themselves. They're not even a shoe company. But to get in this program, now maybe the Olympians are getting more, or I know that um, Mason Furlick does some consulting for Tracksmith. But it says on the official application for the program, you get $250 a year a quarter. That's $1,000 a year. That's retail. So that costs Tracksmith like crazy nothing. Um, but it's cool because all these it shows like all these people they want to be sponsored they want someone to back them so they all signed up and they got two Olympians out of it distance Olympians I mean those aren't like all the other shoe companies with all these pro groups throwing you know hundreds of thousands of dollars <laughs> oops yeah good job to them and then also you guys are talking whether Cole Hawker would be an Olympian last year uh, I just looked up his first race last year as a duck. It was at the Washington Indoor Preview. And let's see here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. In eighth and last place. No, eighth. One guy finished behind him. Cole Hawker, freshman of Oregon, 408-84. He beat one guy named Joshua Sealand. That's the only guy he beat in this race. I'm not sure if he fell down or what. Because about January, a month and Five or six weeks later, he ran a 358 mile for only fifth place. And since then, he's been almost unbeatable. But definitely wouldn't have been an Olympian last year. Yeah, well, that was that's a great that was the point I was about to make. Robert said, Who were the longest shots Olympians going into 2021? The most unlikely Olympians. If Val Constein is one, I think Cole Hawker has to be two because this is a guy who barely qualified for NCAA indoors in 2020. He did run 1332 behind Centro at the very end of the year. But I think to any for anyone to say this kid who just turned 20 years old is going to be not only on the Olympic team, but the U.S. champion, I don't think anyone saw that coming, maybe outside of Cupertia. Hi, John. We talked about the American trials. I don't think we've talked much about the British trials other than the 1500. Since you're half British, did you see the amazing sprint times that won? Check out, these are the sprint times that won the British championships. I know for some reason they were running, I don't know what the weather was like, kind of cold and windy. They're often running into a headwind. 1005, 20.63, 46.05. Those are all pretty bad. T- women's 100, 1097. Okay, they broke 11. 2302. What did Gabby Thomas run, John? 2161. Now that was into a negative 2.9 headwind and 5102. So. Also, if we're going to stick to the Commonwealth, the Canadian Championships or Trials or whatever they call it up there, they didn't have a women's 5,000? What the hell? How do you not even have a women's 5,000 race? But I do want to give a shout-out to Lindsay Butterworth. Her PB was 25.81, so she didn't even have the standard. She won it in 159.19, beating Militia Bissop. That's a, a little bit of a spoonerism there. Militia Bissop. Melissa Bishop. Robert. Anyway, so and she's got a new last name, Nidoro. Nuriagu, I think. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Robert, you need to go to what's the 
pronunciation school. There's, there's a word for that, right? There's a different word I'm trying to think. Elocution school. Anyway, uh, the one thing, British trials, I wanted to hit on this race, actually, because we were blown away by a thing Mo and how amazing she ran. A thing Mo ran a, you know, a positive split. Did you guys see the 800 at the British Olympic trials for the women? Because that race was also stacked. It had Laura Muir, it had Gemma Riki, it had Keely Hodgkinson. And it was the 19-year-old, Keely Hodgkinson. She's only three months older than a thing Mo, who beat them all, 159.61. The second lap there was 57.84. That was leader to leader. Hodgkinson was only sixth at the bell. So she closed in, you know, 57 mid in a 159 race. I thought that was really outstanding stuff from her. And I, I think Mo's better. But Keely Hodgkinson is, I think we could have a nice little transatlantic rivalry between the two 19 year olds over the next decade. Yeah, she's really good. I was worried here at Laura Muir. I mean, third. I'm worried she's just going to somehow figure a way not to medal again. Faith Kipigon wouldn't have been third at the British Champs. She would have won that race if Faith Kipigon was in there. And so that, that's one of the women you've got to be in contention with in the 15, right? Yeah, but I mean, Whatever Laura Muir does in 800 doesn't worry me too much. She's almost always barely contending for the medal. I mean, it's like, oh, is she going to medal or is she not? It's kind of like Paula Radcliffe before she got really good at the marathon. And with the stacked 1500 this year, it's a good chance she doesn't medal again. But how stacked is it really, though? If if Hassan's not doing the 15, if Houlihan's gone, if Gudolf Sagai might do the 5K... I mean, suddenly you've got Kipigon, but then it's not really. Uh, then Par, I think Parier. I'm not Ellie Parier. Is she better than Laura Muir? I'm not sure that she is. Like, I take it back. If Sagai and um, who'd you just say? Hassan. Oh, yeah, Sagai and Hassan are out. Yeah, you're right. I take it back. It's a completely different event. And Hulahan, she better medal. I mean, this is her chance, and it's the Olympics. She's probably you know really pumped that Shelby Hulahan tested positive. But that's the thing. Instead of having super stack fields, we're going to have some super watered down fields because the world athletic schedule is not good. Robert, give them credit. Next year, I, I, I need to review it closely, but I'm fairly confident next year in Eugene, they made every major double doable or at least, at least like not totally impossible. So I do think they made an effort for the major champs next year in Eugene that the big time doubles are doable. The problem is that... Athletes don't like to double at world championships. A lot of them only like to do the doubles at the Olympics. Uh, if you look at some of the big time athletes, like some, well, obviously 5K, 10K, we see that at a lot of world championships. But like someone like, you know, Noah Lyles, he didn't double at Worlds last time. A lot of athletes will just wait to double until the Olympic year. And next, you know, we don't have an Olympics until 2024 after this one. Well, Noah Lyles isn't doubling this year because he couldn't make the team. So that's true. But. He didn't even try. Also, I'm sure next year Robert will be complaining because, you know, you have every other event. So you could probably put the 100 at the start, the 200 at the end, 400 at the beginning, 800. You have to sort of alternate, right? Like, and then in the middle, what's going to happen? I'm sure next year we'll be complaining that the – Robert will complain that the 100-400 double is impossible and everyone should set it up for Fred Curley. <laughs> some of the sprint stuff, I think we should take a moment to talk about some of the sprint action. I thought Fred Curley was absolutely nuts when he bypassed the 400. I still think he's got a gold medal shot in that event. So maybe long-term it's not a good thing. But he backed it up. He makes the team in the 100 in the first weekend. Didn't make it in the 200, but he still ran a PB, 19.9. So, 
I don't know. I mean, you just got to do what motivates you, I guess. He makes the U.S. Olympic team, which is the hardest Olympic team by far to make at 100 meters. I don't think he'll medal in the 100, but I guess you can't rule it out. And if, if you can't rule out meddling, then you're a gold medal shot if you're on the U.S. team in the 100 this year. Uh, I don't know. Gold medal shot. I mean, Bromel's just clearly better than everyone right now. People get hurt, John. People fall start. You know, who knows what can happen. If you're in, if you're on the U.S. team, something could happen to Trayvon Bromel, right? Like everyone thought Donovan Brazier was a lock. Or go ahead, John. Just put him on your gold medal lock right now. Click that box. I'm just saying, if you're banking on someone getting hurt as winning the gold, I, I don't think you're a real serious threat. But I look, I will say this. I mean, yeah, he was third at the U.S. Trials, and the U.S. Trials was going to be more competitive at the Olympics. Like, who else is beating the top three Americans? Like, maybe Andre DeGrasse? I trust DeGrasse to, like, get it ready for a championship final. I don't know if there's anyone else out there who's going to beat him. And now, you know... I think you'd have to say he, he's a good shot at a medal, but I do think Bromel's on a different level than him right now. The other superstar story, and this I hope is the case at the Olympics, was the men's 200. I mean, the 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 poster boy of... He was going to be the poster boy of the Olympics, but do you think Noah Lyles, now that he's only in one event, can still be the sort of U.S. poster boy for sprinting? I think he'll be eclipsed by Bromel. But the 200 more than lived up to its building. Noah Lyles comes through, beats Arian Knighton, the 17-year-old high school sensation who, I mean, was a breath of fresh air at the trials. Kind of got that pizzazz. Really looks like Bolt in that he's a lean sprinter. Points at the clock after the prelims when he's beating Lyles, but gets beat in the final. I'm just hoping the high school kid can keep it together at the Olympics because even though he got beat, I mean, this uh, same thing in the 200, as I say about the 100. These guys could go 1, 2, 3 at the Olympics very easily. Yeah. He's 17, yeah, 17. He's the youngest U.S. track and field Olympian on the men's side since Jim Ryan in 1964. I mean, Bolt, I think more like young Bolt is the comparison because young Bolt was very long and lean. Like older Bolt put on more muscle. And once he put on more muscle, that's sort of when he started running the absurd times. So, I don't I mean, yeah. He, he he ran nineteen eighty four. I mean, again, look outside of America. Who's beating these guys? DeGrasse, maybe, and then the the, the, the thing I did. I do remember twenty sixteen. I got a little carried away. I thought McLaughlin, Sidney McLaughlin, might be able to medal in the four hundred hurdles or even win the four hundred hurdles because I think she, you know she had one of the fastest times that year, and she didn't end up even making the final. I mean, to say that a seventeen year old to expect a medal out of him at the Olympics, I think is a lot, but. He does have the talent to do it. No, that's a good point, John. I didn't realize Sydney had that fast of a time going into the Olympics because, yeah, at the Olympics, she sort of, I don't know if she seemed happy to be there, but she was tired, I guess, is the most favorable reading. Um, and if we're going to, since we mentioned Sydney McLaughlin, and also it's McLaughlin, she's the face of US sprinting. I know we butcher names here. Robert, someone else at the trials, although we patted your back, was like, Rojo's got to yells out to us in the press box. Rojo's got to learn how to pl- pronounce Shalane's name right. But I swear Lee Diffie will say McLaughlin all weekend. Maybe that's his Australian accent. But she runs. Is it John's a human stack book? Fifty-one ninety. Is that right, John? I'm not looking it up. Very good, Weldon. Very good. First time ever under fifty-two seconds. World record at this race. 
more than lived up to its billing because Dalula Muhammad, the former world record holder and world champion, was beating her at eight her at you know hurdle number eight onto the stretch, which was sort of remarkable because Dalula's best time coming into the trial, she'd run a fifty-four five. She lowers that to fifty-three eight in the prelims in the semis. And then 52-42, I mean, a really good run by her. I mean, th- she just knows how to bring it when it matters. So I'm expecting round two of this at the Olympics. There's just no reason. I mean, the little trajectories like this, Sydney's is just has pretty much been – I mean, she hadn't run – she run, what, one 400 race before the trials? But you ex- almost expect this every time out for her now, this type of ability. No, it's going to be fascinating because Muhammad had COVID and was injured early this year, but then she runs 52-42, which is her third fastest time ever. She's on the right upward trajectory, but so is Sydney. Now, Robert, cue up the breaking news mu- music. We've got big time breaking news that actually just broke during this podcast. Can you get me the sound effect, please? The Court of Arbitration for Sport has issued a ruling in the Salwa Eid Nasser appeal, and they have upheld the appeal by World Athletics. That means she is banned for two years for whereabouts failures. She will not be in the Olympics this summer in Tokyo. I almost lost myself, John, when he said Court of Arbitration and Sport. And then I'm like, holy shit, the Salazar thing has come down. But then I started <laughs> thinking, I'm like, there's no way he'd been able, because I'm sure we'll edit this out. Took about thirty seconds for Robert to get the breaking news. I'm like, there's no way, John. If it was Salazar, John just would have said like, Salazar ruling. I don't think you could have kept it quiet for thirty <laughs> seconds. I don't like this. Again, this is another ban that bothers me. So what happened? She missed a bunch of drug tests, which was suspicious to begin with. But they knocked on the wrong door, and so her yes. ban was her ban. Who threw out her ban? There was a World Athletics disciplinary tribunal that was convened after the AIU initially banned her. And that disciplinary tribunal said, no, we're actually striking down the ban. And then the AIU appealed to the court of arbitration for sport. And that was the decision that that came. Well, I'd like to read into it, but I don't like getting people on technicalities. The, the drug testers need to get their, their ducks in a row there should be no doubt about where you knock. There should be. It should all be done. It should be videotaped. It should be. On, it should be all recorded. We shouldn't be having these doubts. But this gets us back to a bigger topic of with Gabby Thomas running so fast in the two hundred. What should Shawnee Miller Webo do? She's a defending champion at the four hundred. She says she wants to run the two hundred. It's an absolute disgrace that the World Athletics won't make the two hundred four hundred double possible for her like it was for Michael Johnson, but. If I'm her, I want nothing to do with Gabby Thomas in that 200 unless she blitzes, blitzes an absolute ridiculous time in the Diamond League in the next week or two. I'm going back to the 400 to defend my title. Nobody can touch her in the 400. She's already run 49.08 this year. She's got a guaranteed goal there. And in the, in the 200, she might win gold, but she also might get like third place, not even medal. Yeah, I mean, look, if you want, what's her best shot at gold? 400, obviously. What's the best for the sport? 200. Go in there. Gabby Thomas, maybe even Shelly Ann Fraser Price is going to be in there as well. That's the race the sport deserves. Can we talk about Gabby Thomas a bit? We didn't really talk about her directly. We mentioned her. But 
I mean, this is someone, she came in with a 22.17 PR this year. Besides to run the 100, I don't even know what her 100 PR was before that. She runs 10, well, she run 10.94 this year in the 100, but she's you know, really never done much in the 100 before this year. She gets fifth in the final in the 100. Looks pretty good all around. And then just goes off goes off in the 200. There's no other way to put it. 2198 in the first round, PB. 2194 in the second round, PB. 2161, only behind Flojo, two of Flojo's times in the third round. I mean, this is crazy. Like, just her improvement this year. This is someone... She hadn't run under 22.6 in the last two years. Now, last year was COVID, but 2019, there was no COVID. I mean, she was like the breakout sprint star. I mean, I don't know if you call her a breakout sprint star. Somebody to run 22, you know, had the NCA indoor record in the past and run 22.1 before. But, like, she hadn't done anything until this year. And then she just went half a second better than she'd ever done, you know, off her best from two years ago. It's like... Unheard of, I feel like. Not unheard of, but truly remarkable. Well, and I said it on the on the nightly VIP podcast. I said if you wanted to reverse the roles and put her as a Russian or some other country, and she had briefly been suspended for missing a bunch of drug tests. Now she proved that the drug testers didn't follow the rules. I can see why someone outside this country thinks she's dirty. I don't think she's dirty, but I people are like, oh, why do the fans think everyone's dirty? It's because you have these stories about almost every single good runner and the history of the sport makes it very hard sort of unless you sort of know some of these people or whatever to think they're clean but i guess they could be confusing us speaking of sprint times and, and races and whatever we need to wrap this show up tomorrow folks we've got a diamond league in stockholm sunday july 4th we've got a excuse me tomorrow's oslo and the big news there is in the in the dream mile um, Ingebrigtsen will not be running it. Jacob Ingebrigtsen is, is sick. This is not a good sign five weeks out from the Olympics that, this, that the hometown star can't even run the dream mile. But we've got the we've, we've got Diamond League in Oslo tomorrow, Diamond League on Sunday in Stockholm. Some Americans are definitely going over there, Kate Grace, um, et cetera. The big news to me, I mean, for warning, we're not going to be recap- recapping the meet on July 4th. We've all got things to do. So we will not be, be recapping that for y'all on Let's Run in Great Detail. But I think we're going to learn a lot from these meets. The biggest thing I'm looking forward to, John, in these two meets is the 1500 in Stockholm. Timothy Chariot. How does he look? I assume that if he puts up a good time or two here and then in Monaco, he's going to run here and in Monaco a week later? I believe that's the plan. Monaco versus... Jakob Inkebrigtsen, the big showdown. If he runs well here, how the how do they keep him off the team? Yeah, I, I don't think they will. I think they'll pick him if he runs well. Also, the th- I mean, look, this game in the Bizlight Games on Thursday. I'll just be. I'll admit it. This is not the best Diamond League field I've ever seen. But the one I Carsten Warholm's running the 400 hurdles, his first 400 hurdles of the year, based on how good he looked in the 300 hurdles in his season opener. I think the world record's in jeopardy. I think he'll have seen the 4683 by Rye Benjamin. And, you know, I I would be looking forward to a fast... I think Rye Benjamin and Warholm are racing next week in Monaco as well, but I'd look for a fast time at Oslo. 
It's a stack 5,000. You got Helen O'Berry. Fontu Worker. A lot of women. See, this is the problem with the sports. See, John's like, it, I, it's not the most stacked meet I've ever seen. You don't need a stacked meet. You don't need to have 10 stacked events. All a fan, a paying spectator needs is like one moment that they'll remember for the rest of their lives. I'd rather have three or four really good races and nothing else than – I think it messes with people's mindset to watch, okay, seven bad events and then three really good events. But if you end the meet with a world record in the 400 hurdles, particularly in front of the hometown crowds, I think everybody's going to be damn happy. Um, we are going to see – and the women's 800 is interesting to me. We're going to get – I said Kate Grace, but we've got – um you know, the Australian record holder, Catriona Bissett in there, Adele Tracy, Nakayu of Uganda. Um, and then Laura Muir must be in the Oslo 800. I guess we've got the Cuban in that one too. So they're running, they've got 800, women's 800 in both meets, which is not brilliant by World Athletics part. But I'm surprised Shakari Richardson, who did not run the 200 at the U.S. trials, John, is going over, I think, to Stockholm to run the women's 200. Get that money. I mean, she's going to get an appearance fee to run Stockholm. Actually, we mentioned the sprint stars. The one thing I wanted to say about the trials, I know we're kind of trying to wrap this up, but look, Shikari Richardson's the biggest sprint star now. Like, it's Allison Felix and then, you know, Shikari, I think. And, I mean, she's got 1.4 million followers on Instagram. Michelle Obama's tweeting about her. Like, Shikari's going, she's going mainstream right now. And, sorry, Shikari. Uh, it's pronounced Shakari. I, I say Kari because I have the accent or whatever, but I get on people about that. Yeah, Shakari Richardson. She's the big star. People love her look. People love her attitude. People love her speed. I think she's, and her, you know, we saw her at the trials. She was incredible there. And we're going to see it in Tokyo as well. And she's got, that. that's a hard gold medal to win. That might be, I mean, the women's hundred is going to be better than the men's hundred in Tokyo with Shelly Ann Fraser Price, with Dina Asher Smith. But Shakari Richardson, I think she's poised to be the biggest star in the in the United States and maybe the entire sport uh, going moving forward. John, I've got my own breaking news. Also from a court, Bill Cosby's sexual assault case has been overturned somehow. All right, and Robert, I'm tired of you just. Be, why do I care? Which one? He has like a hundred against him. I assume this means all of them. I don't know how this is possible. You can't just overturn all cases. That's not how this works. He was convicted in one trial, John. He didn't have multiple trials. So if his case was overturned, it was overturned. I'm just saying what popped up on my phone. Anyways, Shikari's going to be a big star. A track and field fan, Bill Cosby. Yeah, this is track and field related. Shikari is a big star, going to be a big star. A big star from the past, Dina Castor, the American record holder in the Women's Marathon hopped on our VIP subscriber podcast last week. Some of the subscribers probably didn't hear it because I'm, I don't think everybody had time to listen to every podcast every day, the whole thing, you know, 45 minutes. You might have missed a day here or there. So in case you missed it, I asked her, what do you think about the Shelby Houlihan case? I thought her comments were great. I'm going to play them now for our subscribers. If you're not a subscriber, hey, it's only a couple bucks a month. Why don't you join Support Independent Journalism and get the inside information. You can hear how much money I heard Compsessor's making, and you can hear Dina express some doubts about Shelby Houlihan. Let's run.com slash subscribe. Thanks for joining us. Remember, you can get your Let's Run.com pride shirts at shop.letsrun.com. And if you want to be in next year's 
Next time's Olympic trials. Maybe you need the Airway Performance Mouthpiece. This is a mouthpiece. After 16 years of research, it maybe can make you run faster. You need to check it out. Designed for increased endurance, increased strength, faster recovery times. Go to Airwave, A-I-R-W-A-A-V.com and use code LR10 to save 10%. It only costs $39.99.